it's not just like you can have a bad race because you get too nervous. No, the very essence of in the middle of a race, you're asking yourself, can I maintain this pace? Can I speed up? Can I slow down? And that decision, which you're asking yourself with every stride, essentially, is not answered by, I can't speed up because some physical parameter is maxed out, because it's not. It's clearly not. You can keep going. Instead, it's maxed out by your brain's assessment of how hard you're going and whether that is something that is sustainable and will get you to the finish line. And so fundamentally, you make that switch that, oh no, at every point, unless I collapse on the ground, at every point through a race, it's been my mind that's deciding whether I can keep going or whether I can speed up or not. Hey, what's up, Morning Shakeout listeners? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and my guest this week is Alex Hutchinson. Alex is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Endure, which is one of my favorite books of the past few years. He's a contributing editor at Outside Magazine, where he writes the Sweat Science column, and his byline has also appeared in numerous other publications. We recently had a great conversation about writing, running, and the path he's followed in both of those disciplines. We also talked about the concept of endurance, which he wrote an entire book about, the limits on our potential, the future of connected fitness, and a lot more. Before we dive in, I want to say thank you to Tracksmith for supporting this episode of the podcast. Look, it's no secret that I love this brand and everything they do to celebrate and support the sport that we love so much. Founded in Boston in 2014, Tracksmith is an independent running brand built on a deep love for the sport. They craft products, tell stories, and create experiences that aim to celebrate, support, and add to running's distinct culture. As we roll into winter, I'll be spending more time running in the only pair of tights that I own, the turnover tights. And true to its name, the turnover tights let me move freely when I want to run hard in cold conditions. They're lightweight and they don't ride up or cause chafing, which is a problem that I've had with other tights in the past. So if you're looking for the perfect gift for yourself or someone else this holiday season, Tracksmith is offering new customers $15 off your first purchase of $75 or more through the end of the month. To learn more, check out tracksmith.com and use the code Mario15, that's Mario15, when you check out. Okay, let's dive right into this one with Alex Hutchinson. Hutchinson. I love reading your work in Outside and various other places. It is a real pleasure to welcome you to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thanks so much, Mario. It's great to have a chance to to chat, and and of course, likewise, we've been we've been traveling in par- on parallel tracks for a long time. I think. Well, and this is the first time we've had an opportunity to talk since the New York City Marathon. I can't remember if it was last year or the year before. Do you recall? We did an event. It was you and Nick Thompson from Wired, soon to be the Atlantic, talking about human performance. Yeah, I'm thinking that was 2018, November of 2018, but it's all it's all a blur. It's all the before times now, right? But uh yeah, that was a really fun event, and it, there were a lot of people packed into that room. Uh, familiar faces like Kahal Dennehy from from Ireland, and uh, you know, just lots of people from the running world. It was fun to chat with. Yeah, it was great, and I had a fun time hosting that event. And I think that's when I first planted the seed for this conversation. So here we are, two years later, finally having it. 
It's, it's actually faster than my email response time. So, that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we're good then. Well, we're having this conversation in late 2020. I'm curious, what's a typical day look like for you right now? Yeah, you know, a, a typical day at this point is, is actually not radically different from my typical days for the last, let's say, five years. Um, obviously, lots of things have changed, but... Uh, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a freelance journalist, so I've been working from home for, you know, well over a decade now. Um, so there, there hasn't been the same radical change in my life as there has been for a lot of people this year. Um, the biggest sort of dominant factor in how my days go is that I've got two kids who are four and six years old. Uh, the youngest one just started kindergarten this year. So, um, that's a, a big change. They're both going to school. And so it's amazing how long walking them to school takes, um, uh, you know, it's about a mile there and a mile back. Um, and I can, I can power walk back, but getting there takes some time. So that's the rhythm of my day is getting up and, and get, getting the kids ready for, for school, walking them to school, coming back, surfing the web for six hours, and then thinking I should get some work done before the kids get <laughs> home, basically. So typical freelance journalist stuff. Yeah, it's, it, it, it you know it's it's a luxury, and I'm, I'm I, I enjoy the life, but it's also sometimes it is amazing how the time. I'm sure a lot of people are finding this working from home if they're not familiar with it. It's like like well, I'm just gonna you know do that errand or pay that bill. And it's like what? How's it noon? How did that happen? Um, but uh, yeah, and and of course, uh, r- running fits in there sometimes, and it, it's a bit of a a juggling act. My wife is a, is also a. Uh, a committed runner, probably more committed than I am, to be honest. And so in the mornings we have to juggle, like we can't both go running because we can't leave our kids at home. And so one person's running and then for, then we have to get the kids to school. And so sometimes it means I'm, I'm running, you know, mid-morning or, or especially if I'm meeting someone else. Um, but at some point I'm fitting in a run during the day. Are you getting out every day or do you have a minimum number of days per week that you try and get some miles in? I, I, uh, I, I I try not to get too caught up in it because I I'm a extremely like I have I, my natural my, my my the story of my last ten years is is fighting against my obsessive tendencies and trying to just hey I'm gonna be easy come easy go I'm not gonna worry about how many days but the truth is I run six days a week uh, and I'll kill someone if I don't <laughs> <laughs> do you follow a training schedule or are you just getting out and running easy most of the time I have a schedule that's not uh, it's it's sort of evolved by happenstance. So I, I'm, I'm in Toronto right now, which is where I grew up. And, and I, I didn't spend a ton of my adult life here, but we moved back here uh, in 2013, I guess it was. And, and so I had, I have, I have friends who I competed with or trained with or whatever at various points in my life who were here, who were at a similar stage of life to me, um, which is I'm, I'm 45 right now. So uh, I still run and everything, but but we're it's I'm not no longer you know chasing chasing PRs, and so anyway, the, my point is Saturday mornings we have like this uh, a tempo run that's been going on for uh, you know probably about twenty years uh, at, a, at a cemetery in Midtown Toronto, so that's kind of a a a, a major benchmark in my week. Like we we will. Uh, you know, go to the ends of the earth to try and arrange because my wife meets her friends for a Temple Run then too. So we'll we'll do anything possible. We'll use all of our childcare credits, like the number one priority. Saturday mornings we got to get to our Temple Run uh, because it's a it's a fun run and it's also a huge social occasion for us. Just catching up with old friends and and uh, um, and you know when I say Temple Run, obviously I mean race. 
uh, at this point, <laughs> we, we, we go and we hammer it. And we're like, be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was only at 99% today. Definitely, I could have gone faster. But so, yeah, so I do a tempo run Saturdays. And these days, mostly I, tr- I do, sometimes it's one, sometimes it's two. I do an interval work sometimes, an interval workout sometimes during the week. Um, these days, uh, it depends who's around, who's, whose life is uh, is is suitable for meeting up with me. But so I have one friend, my friend Salam, who I, I meet up with usually Wednesdays or Thursdays and just do a, a some sort of, you know, long intervals or hills or whatever the case may be. Um, there's not the sort of seasonal logic or, or strong, you know, planning that would go into like, I want to peak at such and such a day or right. anything. But, you know, at, at a certain point you can kind of, if I have a race that I'm, that is coming up, I can say, Hey, you know, let, let's do some, some race paced work or whatever, or I'm good, or I taper or whatever. But yeah. And then the other days I just fill in and, and, uh, do mostly easy running. I've, I've lately been doing a slightly longer run on Sundays, but not, you know, long run by a, like 1500 meter runner standards, not by marathon standards. Even if you're not building up for a race, does having those, couple of days per week where you're pushing yourself hard and you're meeting up with friends, things that you have done throughout the entirety of your career as a runner, does it give you some sense of, of comfort or, or confidence? Because a lot of folks who were, say, competitive 1,500-meter runners such as you were decades ago, I mean, more often than not, they move on from the sport. And if they do run at all, it's just, it's easy jogging. They don't want to do the workouts anymore, even if they're slower than they, they once were. But I'm, I'd love to just dig into that a little bit with you. Yeah, it's, it is interesting because obviously like you, I have a lot of friends who, some of whom knew, knew they would move on, but a lot of whom assumed they would keep running, but somehow slip away from it. For me, I think it's kind of the opposite in the sense that I, I, the tempo run and the interval run are what it's all about for me. I mean, not that I don't enjoy other forms of running or whatever, or not that I don't hate, you know, the, the fifth interval or whatever, the, 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 the last part of the tempo run, uh, under certain circumstances, but that, that's what I enjoy. It's like, that's, that's where the challenge is. And if I was just going out to jog, uh, you know, quote unquote, six days a week, I, I think I would, I would get bored pretty quickly. I I I don't think I would still be running if I wasn't still doing these things that feel like they have some purpose beyond just like mm-hmm. introspection and aerobic fitness or whatever that have like hey let's go test myself let's go see where I'm at um so I think that that it, for whatever reason is it, that that's what I find more attractive rather than less attractive and it's not because yeah it's not because I'm a masochist and just love mm-hmm. to suffer it's there's just something about I mean, there's the satisfaction of having of doing a hard workout, but there's also just it 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 adds a layer of intellectual challenge of interest, um, and so I you know I would I would much rather meet my friends for a hard run than for an easy run. Has your relationship with training in these workouts evolved over the years that you've been involved in the sport as an athlete? Yeah, definitely. I mean, and it's inevitably influenced by the fact that I write about running, right? So. Um, there's a sort of self-consciousness that I'm, I have to live the, the things that I'm writing about, but mm-hmm. it also makes me think, it makes me probably more prone to thinking or asking myself how I'm feeling about what I'm doing and why I'm doing what I'm doing, because I, I'm often writing about how to encourage other people to do the things that I'm, that I'm doing. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it's changed a lot. And, and the big, so uh, 
the, the big transition for a lot of people, especially people who start out in the sport young, is what happens when I no longer can dream of getting faster in an absolute sense? Um, whether it's because, you know, for some people that's at 25 because they've got uh, mm-hmm. professional responsibilities and family responsibilities. Uh, for other people, it's it's a little later if they choose to keep prioritizing running. But at a certain point, it's it's inevitable for anybody. If you've trained hard when you're 20, uh, or, or, you know, for any length of time, you're not going to set PBs when you're 45 unless, you know, even Bernard Legat is not setting PBs at 45. Um, so yeah, I, 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 in some sense, part, part of it is I, I've shifted the, the focus a little bit to the social aspect, to the personal discovery aspect. There's also, I think, a part of it where I, I try not to think too hard about it. I just ha- I have a good routine going. I enjoy doing what I do. And so I don't want to like dig too deep and, 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 and psychoanalyze myself to the point where it's like, oh, now I realize that I'm compelled to do Saturday morning tempo runs because of some deep, massive insecurity or something. And now that I've addressed that, I'm never going to run again. That would be a terrible outcome. So <laughs> p- part of me, I was actually just, not to ramble on, but I was rereading the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books mm-hmm. uh, a few years ago. And there's a section where, not, not to get too obscure, but one of the characters, Zaphod Beeblebrox, is going around doing a bunch of crazy things. And then he eventually discovers with a brain scanner that he's he's kind of like locked off his true motivations so that he, even he doesn't know why he's doing what he's doing. Um, and, and sometimes I feel like that. It's like, <laughs> I, I go out and run because I go out and run. And there's things I know I like about it. But uh, I don't necessarily need to to excavate the the true ultimate causes. That resonates a lot with me. I'm a little younger than you are, but I've been involved with the sport on a competitive level for the past 23 years, and, and I hadn't heard it quite put in that way. But I think that's I think that's exactly spot on. I get out and I do this, and on some level, I don't really know like why I'm doing it, but I'm going to continue to do it because I, on in some sense, I know no other way. And 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 I, I'm sure you, you feel the same way. I, I I know it's good for me. I I know that it makes me happier on a lot of levels. Yes, um, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that if I wasn't in the habit of doing it, I would start doing it because it is you know it's a lot of work and and there's the temptation. There are a lot of things that seem on paper like they would be more fun or more rewarding or uh, y- you know would give you back more. But somehow I, I know this this way of doing things and and I like it and I, I'm, you know all things considered, I, I I I'm reasonably happy with that part of my life. So. I feel like, yeah, it, I mean, I, it, 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 I, there's, I guess there's that, all that literature that tells us we make these decisions for ourselves and then we reverse engineer the reasons. Like we decide something and then we, if you ask someone to explain why they did it, you can always come up with a reason. And I can come up with lots of reasons that explain why I think running is great and why I go out and do it and why I run hard sometimes and easy other times rather than just going out easy all the time. But I, I'm never sure whether those are the real reasons or whether I'm just able to come up with plausible explanations for why. You mentioned a little while ago how your wife is also a runner, perhaps more dedicated than you are. You have two young kids. How does that all work together? I mean, I, I don't know if your kids are at an age where they're ready to, to run yet, but do they understand you and your wife's you and your wife's respective relationships to the sport and the place that it holds in your life? Yeah, it's it's been interesting to see that evolve. So they're, they're six and four right now. And so they've never known a time where mommy and daddy didn't go for a run pretty much every day. Um, so it seems pretty normal to them. And they've often, you know, expressed 
passing interest in, oh, I want to go running. Okay, so we'll sometimes we'll we'll you know take them for a little run around the block or something like that. I it's 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 interesting because I came to running as a teenager really is when I started training seriously. At least I always enjoyed running and I always felt like I was a fast kid on the playground or whatever. But I I got serious as as a, as a teenager, whereas my wife was, her dad was running marathons. And so she started doing like triathlons when she was seven and she was, you know, winning stuff and, and starting to understand this idea of training at a very young age. So we have different visions of, of, of what a healthy way to instill a lifelong love of physical activity is. And, you know, we're, we're both trying to, to sort that out. Cause I, I mean, I should say clearly, of course, like we want our kids to be happy. We want them to be physically active, if they run, that's great. If they, if they, you know, if they choose, uh, you know, whatever, if they choose fencing or modern pentathlon, that's, that's fine too. What, you know, anything that, that and, and if they don't, regardless of whether or not they're competitive, we just want them to enjoy being active and being outdoors. So the question is, how, how do you instill that? Do you model that as soon as possible? Or do you kind of not push them because they're going to feel pushed already because both their parents are are so sort of dedicated to this idea of running. So it's something we talk about a lot and, and, and kind of, we certainly don't have the answers. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I'd like to go back to my first question. I asked you about a typical day for you right now. You mentioned how for the past five years, you've been a freelance journalist over the past nine months that we have been in this pandemic. Has it been harder to do that to be a freelance journalist, which is not an easy thing to do even in normal times. Yeah, I mean, in terms of like the the ability to do my job, it it's been a little bit challenged in that. Um, for example, I I was working on a feature article for a magazine recently, and it's like, wow, it's hard to write four thousand words about something when you don't leave the house and when you don't have the ability to paint a picture as as you know, to the extent, you know, you're talking to someone on the phone instead of going and spending a few days with them. So there are some, there are some, uh, sort of just differences in how, how things are playing out on the, the, the big scale is like, which publications are going to survive, what, you know, what money is going to exist to pay freelance journalists. Um, and that, I, so I, my, my regular gigs are, I, I have a online column for, for outside magazine and I have a, a semi-regular column for a newspaper here in, in Canada called the Globe and Mail, as well as a magazine here in Canada called Canadian Running Magazine. So all of those things, which are my sort of recurring, I don't have to like pitch them. It's like they expect something from me on a, re- on a regular basis. All of that has continued as more or less as expected during the pandemic, but it's the kind of thing. There's that cliche from uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald. You know, it was Hemingway about going bankrupt. That how did you go bankrupt? Well, very gradually, and then all at <laughs> once. And it's like, so I, I watch these things, and it hasn't affected me so far. But I I watch the the industry, and I worry that that uh, what has been a sort of sustainable way of of going about things for me, it, it, it could disappear tomorrow. And and you know, there was. Runner's World, where I worked for five years uh, from 2012 to 2017, they're doing okay now, but they, not long after I left, and obviously this is coincidental, it's just the, the timing happened to be, you know, they, Rodale, the company that owned them, basically just disappeared off the face of the earth after whatever it was, 60 years of 
being a big, huge, huge company. So there's that sort of existential fear that if you're a journalist, you feel that fear every morning when you wake up. Uh, you just don't know <laughs> how long the things that sustain you are going to keep are, are going to be around for. But yeah, other than that, this sort of day to day stuff, it's it's uh, other than never leaving the house, which I was never strong on anyway. Um, <laughs> it, it hasn't changed that much for me. How do you think about the future of journalism? Because we're getting to this point where it's hard to just be a writer anymore. You've got a lot of journalists who are playing with different types of, of media. And as you mentioned earlier, there are publications that are sort of folding left and right. The way that stories are presented is changing. I'd love to get some of your perspective on that. Yeah, this is, I mean, look, <laughs> we could have a 25-hour conversation on this and I'm sure we'd still have more to say because it's it's a really interesting question. And here we are talking on a podcast, right? Right. And, and it, which is really the the fascinating new format, which is funny because, you know, it's like, Hey, a conversation, you know, it's, 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 it's the oldest form of journalism or not the oldest, but one of the oldest. And yet it's also the newest. Um, and, and there's, there, you know, there are other like email newsletters is another, <laughs> as you know, uh, a, uh, I play in these spaces. Yeah, yeah. You, you. I, I don't have to introduce you to these concepts, um, but it's it's something that's been a, a really hot and interesting topic in the last, let's say, three, three five to five years. And you know, there's some pretty big examples of major, major uh, journalistic names leaving established publications, like Andrew Sullivan and, and other people, and saying, you know what, I'm I'm going to do this as an email newsletter, and it's 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 going to be me. Um, and and it sort of gets into uh, the. I mean, there, there's a lot of sub questions, but one of the big questions is: Are are you better off being your own brand or being a voice for a specific brand? And I, I've kind of played on the fence of those uh, of of that debate in that I've I've been a freelancer for for 15 years actually, and um, so I haven't had a staff job. I I, I haven't been you know on on staff with anybody. But I've been, you know, I was with Runner's World for five years, so I was sort of thought of as a Runner's World guy. And then I've been with Outside for, I guess, three years now. So I'm considered a guy from Outside Magazine, even though I'm a freelancer. So I'm, I'm kind of, I don't know where I fit in that, in that dichotomy and, and how long that's sustainable. And then the other thing from my perspective is I've written a few books. I've written actually uh, three books one of which I, I try never to mention, which was from a long time ago. And then one of which I thought was okay, but it didn't do particularly well. And then the last one did well enough that it, it sort of opened doors for me. Um, Endure was published in, in 2018. And so in terms of what I see for the future as a, as a journalist, and particularly as a journalist writing about running and endurance and things like that, I mean, I would love to write another book like Endure, but I, I don't know what what the book would be about because it's like I, I everything I knew I wrote I put in Endure, so I covered it pretty well. Right? I, I don't I don't have like a backup plan. It's like also would you would you believe I'm an expert in gardening and I'm going to write about that? It's like no, I haven't spent thirty years thinking about gardening. So the book is a it's a really attractive prospect because it's like wow. Uh, I'm, I, I don't depend on the existence of another publication and it, you know, it's, 
it feels sort of entrepreneurial in a way, especially these days. Uh, you know, authors are really much more responsible for their own uh, outreach. So it's fun and entrepreneurial, but you have to have an idea. Whereas it's one thing to come up with an idea for a magazine article. It's another thing to come up for, with an idea for a book. And some people are better at it than, than, than others. Matt Fitzgerald obviously doesn't have trouble coming up with ideas for books. <laughs> no, he, no, he does not. And I had the pleasure of working literally right next to Matt Fitzgerald for a few years at Competitor when we were both there. And I have never seen someone who can just churn out content with the consistency that that he can i mean he really is like a machine in in that regard and i think at this point he's written over 20 of them and he's putting out at least two a year for the past several years which is just mind-boggling to me yeah it, it's unbelievable you should have been stealing post-it notes from his desk because i'm sure you would have had like six book ideas just put from the from the post-it notes but yeah i mean i, I just i just put together a book list for for outside i think it's going to go online it'll be online by the time this podcast airs and I was like, well, I'll, I'll put one of Matt's new books out. It's like, I wanted to put Running the Dream out because I, I on because I I thought that was a really fun book. Of, of the, he spent a summer training training with Northern Arizona Elite, and it's like, it was published in like March. It's not even his most recent book. <laughs> he has another book already out. And I'm like, yeah. So anyway, all of which is to say, the book idea, journalism as a sort of instead of I work for the you know such and such a newspaper or such and such a magazine as a sort of yeah, I've got the podcast. I, I do an email newsletter, which I, I in fact do, uh, I, or I, and I write books every few years. It's it, it's fun, but it's hard to find the right balance for all those things and um, and and figure out how much time you're supposed to be spending in in different ways and where the money actually comes from. While we're on the topic of books, you mentioned how you've written three. I'm not familiar at all with your first to Endure, which is your most recent, came out two years ago. I absolutely loved. I imagine there was a bit of spacing between those three books. You're not Matt Fitzgerald and putting out like three in the same year. So I'm curious from an author's standpoint, how have things changed for you from that first book to your most recent in terms of marketing it and getting the word out to a wide audience? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, and I have the the three books are pretty instructive because the first book was actually um, this is like rare archival material. No one knows about this book. It, it was called Big Ideas, uh, and I can't remember the subtitle. Like fifty inventions that have changed from the changed the modern world or something like that. This was, I think, it, I think it came out in two thousand nine. I was a pretty new freelancer at that point, and, and I was doing a lot of work for Popular Mechanics. I did a feature article for Popular Mechanics where I consulted a bunch of experts from around the world on who were experts on innovation and stuff and said, what are, what are the greatest inventions of the last 50 years or so? And the, the feature article was well received. So then I got a call from the, the publisher saying, hey, or from a publisher saying, hey, we work with Popular Mechanics Imprints. Do you want to turn this article into a book? Instead of 50 inventions, we'll turn it into 100 inventions. And I was like, a book? Fantastic. I'll do it. Uh, I'll, where do I sign? Uh, the amount they offered me was was you know, negligible. I can't, uh, and it, it, it was, it was ridiculous. I, I probably made more writing the feature article than I did writing the book. Um, I, I, I didn't feel like I had any leverage. I didn't do anything at that point. I wasn't on Twitter yet. It was like 2008. I wasn't promoting this or anything. I was just, it was like f fulfilling a contract, um, with no, I had no say in anything. Uh, I was unhappy with a lot of how it turned out. So that was that was my first experience. Zero zero marketing, zero like just and that's kind of like 
20 years ago, not that every, every author had experiences like that, but it used to be that a book was, you, you, you wrote a book and then the publisher took care of everything else. And I was, I was sort of catching the dying embers of that way mm-hmm. of doing things. My second book came out in 2011. And by then it was already clear that the world had changed. And it was like, author, you sell the book. And that book was called, um, it's the worst title in the world. I, I didn't come up with it, but it's, it, I wanted to call it sweat science, but it was called, uh, which comes first cardio or weights, fitness myths, training truths, and other surprising discoveries from the science of exercise. And basically it was a collection of just over a hundred, basically Q and A's just like fitness questions. And there'd be a question like, how long does it take to get fit? Or, you know, should I run in, you know, in, in running shoes or barefoot? And I, and I would then spend, you know, 600 to a thousand words looking up the, the research and saying, here's what we know. And the answer to most of the questions was, ah, we don't really know, but you know, don't, t- don't tell that to anybody. But anyway, the, the point was in that process, I was, it was, the newer model was already emerging and I had started a, a WordPress blog in, I don't know, 2008, 2009 with that book in mind, I joined Twitter and started to s- deliberately build an audience. Now that audience didn't get big enough to, to, really helped the book in 2011, but it was starting that process of understanding that, you know, you need to, you need to find an audience and, and having a book sitting on a shelf in a bookstore is, is not really the way to do it uh, unless you already, like, it's very hard to, to just have people stumble on the book. And so Endure, which then came out in 2018, and I started. I had started notionally working on on that, even while finishing the previous book. So it was almost a ten year sort of time span. That actually, like, I I like to think it's a good book. I, I I'm I'm happy with many parts of it, but also part of the reason that people read it is that I spent ten years writing about the topics related to it, mm-hmm. discussing them on Twitter, having a blog that was first on WordPress and then it was on Runner's World. And then eventually it was on outside by the time the book came out. And so there were people who were already receptive to the message of the book. That, and that's, I think, one of the things that makes it hard for me to contemplate duplicating what happened with Endure is that I don't really want to spend 15 years building an audience for my next book. That's a long time. I'm not, I'm not, not, as, I'm not as young as I used to be. So you just have to build on it at this point. I mean, that's, that's one way of looking at it, but I don't think that's a good reason to, to write another book. So I, I, I'm, tr- I'm trying to convince myself not to, that w- another, another reason that I think Endure turned out well, and, and I, actually this is another maybe point to make about the progression of the three books. Book one, I was just like, whatever I think they want, I will do. Book two, I was trying to write what I wanted to write, which was like, not, I'm not giving you my advice, I'm just giving you the evidence. Here's the evidence and you can decide what you think based on that. But nonetheless, it was I was still being steered by the, the editorial team. Um, you know, there's, there's a reason the t- the book title was "Which Comes First, Cardio or Weights." It was it was appe- trying to appeal to an audience that was probably not my core audience. You know, I sh- I should have been trying to write a book for fitness nerds, not for uh, trying to get like a big part of a narrow niche audience that would that resonated with me, as opposed to trying to appeal to this much bigger audience, much of whom had nothing in common with the things that I, that I was interested in. And so what worked well with Endure is I said, oh, well, the last two books have not changed the world. This one's not going to change the world. So, you know what, don't, don't try and nickel, you know, don't try and shave the edges to make this slightly more popular. Just write the book that you think is interesting. 
Um, and so I really wrote it for myself in some ways. I really resisted trying to give training, a, a bunch of training advice and endure, which is one of the criticisms I've got, which is fair that it's like, I talk a lot about the brain's role in endurance, but I don't give any like exercises for how to maximize your endurance. That's not what I'm, I'm good at. And so I, I just tried to do what I thought was my strength and what I was interested in. So sorry to meander back. So in terms of contemplating the next book, you have to think about what's strategic, what's feasible, what's financial, like, you know, I, but I, I also don't want that to outweigh just doing, making sure that it's something that I'm really interested in and that I'm happy I spent a few years working on regardless of how well or how poorly it sells. Well, let's do a little thought experiment. What is interesting to you right now that could potentially turn into a longer exploration that is book length? Yeah, you know, so I think no matter what, I, th I think it's fair to say that any book topic I pick will have resonance with the topics I've been writing about, the ideas of endurance and, and challenge and things like that. Um, the question is how tightly it hews to that. And so I, I've been really interested lately in, in ideas about around exploration and quests and, and I, you know, in a sense, not to sound too grandiose about it, but, you know, sort of search for meaning. Like, wh why is it that I, right, to, right back to the questions we were talking about earlier, like, why do I still go running? Why do I still do tempo runs? I mean, and in a sense, maybe that encapsulates one of the questions that I'm really sort of trying to grapple with and trying to figure out, you know, why do I do this? And is it a good idea? Is it, <laughs> am, I, am I correct in thinking that this is a thing that will increase my net happiness? Uh, or, or am I just sort of stuck in a rut? And doing what I've what I've always done, and so I'm I, I'm interested in exploring why we set off on big set ourselves why we set ourselves big goals whether it's a good thing whether it's hardwired you know neuroscientifically into us, um, and and I, this is a very vague thing because I haven't really narrowed it down. But you, you immediately come to some sort of branches in the road, which is that am I going to write a sort of meditation on the nature of quests or am I going to write a self-help book that tells you how to you know supercharge your career and your happiness by figuring out five you know key ways of optimizing your goal setting and I, I say that with tongue-in-cheek obviously I, that's not what I want to do but those are the extremes and the question is where on the spectrum between the extremes do, do I want to devote my my interest and my attention the first thing I thought of as you were explaining that was Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And I was like, oh, Alex could write The Runner's Search for Meaning. And <laughs> there it is. I've done it for you. you. You know what? I, I, I read, I, you know, Brad Stelberg and Steve Magnus are, are you know, they, they think very carefully about this kind of stuff. And, and, you know, they put out their annual book list recently. I can't remember. They, they've had Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meeting on that in the past, I think. I actually haven't read that yet. And I keep thinking, I, I need to read that because this is ultimately, yeah, it's what I'm interested in is that, but narrowed down to the, to the, like, yeah, the runner's search for meeting or, or more generally, less sort of the endurance minded person's search for meaning and what role because it is interesting that there's this large sort of subgroup of people who take on these ridiculous tasks whether it's running your first 5k running a marathon running an ultra marathon for more and more people climbing a mountain like what's the what's the payoff here and what 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 are we really after what 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 is the itch we're trying to scratch in these things and and uh 
Yeah, maybe Victor Frankl's got, got some insights. <laughs> I'll have to check them out. As I mentioned earlier, you come from a competitive running background. You were a national class 1500 meter runner in Canada. You have your PhD in physics. How did you end up writing about human performance? Yeah, it definitely wasn't part of the the master plan or anything like that. It 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 uh it it just sort of happened. Um I mean, physics was a uh was interesting, but it was in some sense a sort of placeholder. I didn't just didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And and one of the pieces of advice I got was uh, just do hard stuff. Take the hardest option at any at any at any fork in the road. Take the harder option, and then you'll you'll maximize your chances down the road because it's a lot easier to to uh, well put it this way: it's easier to shift from physics to journalism than it would have been to shift from journalism or from English literature or whatever to to physics at twenty eight. Um, so I was, I was doing that cause I didn't know what I wanted to do. And by 28, I'd kind of realized, okay, I've given this a fair shot. And I, I, uh, yeah, I, I, it's not, it's not, it's not turning my crank in the way that it was turning the crank of other people in the physics lab where I was working. I could, you know, they, they, they were, they would do the job and then go home and read physics today. Whereas I would do the job and go home and, and think about running or whatever. So uh, I, I kind of made the switch when I was 28. I left my physics postdoc and, and went to J school, uh, journalism school, uh, without a whole lot of knowledge about what journalism would entail, but having made the decision that what, what even if I ended, you know, wh- wherever I ended up in the journalism path, that it would be fun to pursue that path regard. So I was trying to not, not have it centered on a goal because look at it happens that 28 was also the, the, my last Olympic trials. Um, and it had been a sort of disappointing end in that I'd been in the shape of my life and got a stress fracture three months before, months before the trials. So I went and ran the trials having been, you know, out of the pool for a couple of weeks. Um, and, oh yeah, my point here was that running at least for that, for me at that point in my life was all consumed with big goals and, you know, then the biggest one being the Olympics. But of course there's always, you know, you, you set, multiple tiers of goals. And it was always about things will be awesome if I achieve goal X. And I'd been in the running game long enough to know, and I'd been lucky enough to have some of my dreams come true. So I knew that achieving what you think is the most amazing thing in the world, it feels really good for a very short amount of time. And, and then you just kind of re-up and, and, uh, and say, so for me, I was a good junior athlete, but never quite good enough to make a national team. And so in my mind, if I could make a national team, it would totally validate my entire life. If I could put on the maple leaf and, and, you know, it would prove that everything I'd been doing was worthwhile and blah, 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 blah. And when I was 21, I made my first national team and it was, you know, a small one world university games. It was the most amazing experience in my life. But within like two days, I was like, okay, now I, I need to go out and actually compete well at this international meet. And you know how it goes. Yeah, whatever, whatever goal you achieve, you move on to the next one. Yep. And so uh, career-wise, in journalism, I was trying to avoid that. I was trying to say, I want to enjoy the process. I want to find something that is fun to do, not that depends on me achieving some goal. So that's a super long answer, which didn't actually get to your question, which was how did I get to sports performance? But the short version of that is basically... Uh, you know, as a freelancer, you start you start to realize that you you, you got to use whatever edges you have to to get openings. And so I could I could cl- pitch myself as a scientist and also someone with experience in uh, you know c- competitive sport. And so I started I was able to open doors by 
pursuing those areas. And I discovered actually there was a whole world of sports science that I hadn't actually known about as an athlete. And so I was personally interested in it too. So that made a good combination. Had you always had an interest in writing? Yes and no. I mean, yes, I'd enjoyed it, but I don't know that I would have identified it as a strength of mine, particularly in high school uh, or university even. I would say during my PhD, I th- I remember I, 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 kn- I know in hindsight that I must have been somewhat interested in the idea because I wrote one back of the magazine uh, essay for Physics World, a sort of funny, at least I thought it was funny, essay on the the, the, the challenges of being a grad student. I remember because I actually kind of made fun of basically everyone in my lab and my advisor. I thought it was in an indirect enough way, but then my, my, my lab mates saw it and they're like, oh my God, I can't believe you said that about your, your supervisor. And I was like, oh, I hope he doesn't read this. Anyway, so I knew I had some interest. And then I was writing up my, my PhD thesis, which is widely considered the sort of worst part of doing a PhD, especially if you're in a science PhD. People love doing their experiments and yada, yada, but, but writing up 200 pages on their experiments just sounds horrible. And I actually enjoyed it. It was fun. Um, and that, I think, was one of the clues that, to me that I was like, actually, this sort of, the challenge of trying to express something complicated uh, and make it accessible and do it elegantly was a fun challenge to me. And, and I think that's, that's actually telling because it's not, I wasn't writing short stories or, or poetry uh, or things like that. Things that a lot of people who end up, you know, writing as journalists will, will have done when they're younger or even continue to do. Um, for me, the challenge of writing was, was explanatory in some ways. And I think that's it's probably not surprising the type of journalism that I've ended up doing and what's, what's str- what my relative strengths are as a, as a journalist. Let's continue down that line. In the dedication to Endure, you wrote that the book was for your parents, Moira and Roger, whose curiosity, rigor, respect for differing perspectives, and talent for clarity remain the model I strive for in everything I write. I'd love to dig into that a little bit more. Were your parents writers? I'm really glad you read that. That's, that's, uh, that, that dedication meant a lot to me. Um, and, and was sort of much more carefully thought out than, than for my previous books. So my dad started out, this is, I, I, the parallels only really, uh, jumped out at me later, but my dad was an oil field engineer in, in Alberta until he was 28 when he decided to go back to school and, and study theology. Um, and he was going to be a, a pastor, but he ended up changing his mind and doing a PhD and becoming an academic where he, um, he taught ethics. So his, his focus was ethics in particular. Uh, I, I don't know the, the terminology, but his focus was, was how do you have a debate about something where everyone brings in different assumptions and, uh, and, uh, and beliefs about what's true and what's not. So you, you can't have a debate when no one agrees on the premises. And, uh, just, Strangely enough, uh, you know, my dad's 85 now, um, you know, he's long retired, but he just got an email from a, a prof at the University of Saskatchewan who's, uh, um, who had, hadn't known him, but had just wanted to send, who had found his email address and said, oh, I just wanted to let you know we're still reading this paper you wrote in 1984 and using Hutchinson's method to clarify ethical arguments. And he had this four-step process for starting to, by understanding the the sort of 
clarifying each other's values and then the, the stories people tell and then you get to the facts and then and it becomes this anyway I'm, I'm i'm rambling here but the point is he was really interested in how you have a discussion among people who don't agree on things and still and and and, and having a discussion doesn't mean you're going to end up agreeing with them or that you're all going to agree on what the outcome of the debate is but that you can you can have a reasonable exchange of views and understand what the other person's perspective is. And I think aspirationally, at least, that that is exactly what I want to characterize my journalism when I'm writing about whether it's like low-fat diets or, uh, you know, t- uh, carbon fiber plates and running shoes. Uh, I don't necessarily want to be telling other people want, what to think, but I want to make sure that I understand even among you know two or more sides who hate each other, that I understand the other, the, the various perspectives and even of the people I disagree with, and I can convey wh- why some people believe X and other people believe Y, and that, like I said, that doesn't resolve all the questions, but it or, or, you know doesn't definitely doesn't resolve all debates. There's still going to be disagreements, but my my really strong feeling is if you don't understand why someone completely disagrees with you. Uh, then you don't really understand your own argument. You don't understand what's what people are arguing against. So anyway, that's <laughs> that's my dad, and and that that was really. So I think I think in ways that I didn't really appreciate until I was partway through this book. Uh, I think that's been his influence on me, and, and that's why I said you know respect for differing perspectives. Um. Anyway, yeah, that's a long answer, but. No, well, I appreciate you sharing that because that's one of the things that I love about your writing is that it's not dogmatic. It forces me to think about my own stance on something, whether it's carbon fiber plates or a diet or, you know, some late, the latest research on some training protocol, whatever it may be, because I feel like a lot of that is just lost during our our current times, especially online where things are just so polarized. And the the result of that is it's hard to have a, a discussion and to really understand where someone else is coming from because we just don't listen to one another. Yeah, and of course, as, as I'm sure we'll both, we can both attest to, social media can be the, <laughs> the the worst amplifier of those of those tendencies, and it's something I really s- struggle with. Of you know, one to the the thing that I find hardest to deal with is not people who disagree with me. But people who assume that because I disagree with them, or or you know, assume they know what I think, or, but but also don't seem to have any understanding of why anyone might disagree with them, um, even very very smart people, and and that those those forms of discussion are, they're just so sad to me, and, and because you can't actually have a, a, a an exchange of views with them, and and so. Um, yeah, I don't know what I'm saying here other than that I, I, I really think it it's it's it is nice to 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 have interactions with people even with whom you disagree if you can sort of see what they're talking about and and uh, and agree to disagree sometimes. You talked about your dad's influence on how you approach your work today. How about your mother? Yeah, so my mom, she worked for nonprofits for most of her her life that were involved in uh in social justice, um, in the eighties, her main focus was was South a- the situation in South Africa, and you know, lobbying Canadian companies to divest from South Africa. And then in the nineties, her focus was labor standards, uh, you know, particularly among garment workers. 
Um, she is, uh, <laughs> I, I wish I could live up to her standards for, for doing the right thing. Um, and for, for, you know, focusing on other people, but she's also just more generally independent of what her, her working career was. She is an extremely logical thinker and, uh, you know, I can remember in high school and even in university having her read my essays and, and sort of break down the arguments and, and point out where things weren't clear. And so I would say if my if from my dad I get this desire to to kind of see all sides of an issue and respect all sides, my actual writing is probably most closely of anyone in the world a, a, a carbon copy of my mom's writing that just trying to, and I think this is really key for, again, for what I've ended up doing for trying to write about sort of scientific research, it's, you can't just sort of feel your way into an argument and just sort of shoot off the, the top of your head. Here are some things about this. You have to understand what is important here? What is, what is the key point I want to get across? And let's make sure that's the first thing. What's the second most important thing you want to get across? And, you know, and you learn this in journalism school too, right? But in the inverted pyramid format of articles and stuff. But I think my mom from a very early age I, I just, have to, she, she was the one who gave me the most feedback on my writing in, as, as a, as a, you know, as a student. And that sort of clarity of thought, I think, is, or at least is what I, again, what I aspire to, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't want to say I always get there, but it's just as a random aside, I was interviewing a scientist re, uh, recently, along with uh, one of two of his students, and he was having them explain their, their each of them had 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 a recent paper publication, a paper published, and he was having them explain their research to me. And he was very, like, he kept interjecting and saying, "No, no, no okay, don't." He like basically saying, "Don't just talk about what you did. What were the questions you were trying to answer? And what were the res you know how did you answer the questions? And what were the results? Just that sort of very, the flow that allows someone else to understand it, uh, and and." To, convict, to allow someone else to understand something complicated, you have to be clear in your own mind what that logical flow is. And that is, I think, what my mom's, one of my mom's greatest strengths as a, as a writer and more generally just as the way she approached problems. Do your parents still read your writing today? My mom is probably the only person who reads everything I have <laughs> ever written. Yeah. So I, I sometimes, you know, it, it's, it's common as a sort of, uh, I don't know, maybe it's just me to, to sort of use the mother as a figure of, you know, my mom said this or, you know, to make an offside comment about moms being proud or overprotective or whatever. Uh, and every time I do that, I'm, I'm generally not thinking of her specifically. I'm just using the mother as a stock figure and she'll, I'll hear from her and, and it's like, I never did that. And I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot. Mothers are real people. They're not just stock figures in literature. We haven't talked a whole lot about your background in running. When did you first discover a talent for the sport? Yeah, not to be too grandiose about it, but I remember senior kindergarten four times across the junior gym and I beat Stephen Mills, who was the tall guy. I assumed that tall guys were, were just automatically fast. And so, and I, I have huge respect for Stephen Mills, but yeah, so senior kindergarten, I, I was like, hey, I'm pretty fast. So I had that identity throughout elementary school uh, and I ran, we, we were allowed to run cross country, um, starting in grade three and I did well in that. Um, so I, I've kind of always thought of myself as someone who ran and was fast. And then when I was 15, um, I started, 
I joined a track club here in Canada. Things are a little bit, they're kind of halfway between the totally school oriented model in the U S and the totally club oriented model in Britain. There's schools and clubs and generally the more serious runners will, will train outside the school system and join a track club. And so I, I did that kind of at the urging of my, of my mother, actually just thinking that I might enjoy, uh, joining the team. And, uh, I initially, the other thing that's different in Canada is, is, um, instead of having all age groups in high school compete together, there's, there's very strict age, or not strict, but, but specific age categories. You know, at, at, when I was in high school, it was midget, junior and senior categories in high school. So you, the grade nines didn't run against the grade twelves and the eight, the, the breakdown for when you moved up an age was based on a September 1st birthday. Whereas the the year that you went to school was based on a January 1st birthday. So one third of people in a given grade would be allowed to compete with the grade a year younger. And I was one of those people. Sorry, this is again a super, super long answer, but anyway. Um, so when I was in grade 10, I realized, hey, I have an opportunity to compete with the grade nines. So yeah, okay, I'll join this track club for the track season, just to, to maximize my opportunity to do well in this sort of unique, uh, sort of age cheating opportunity. And, uh, as it happened, I, I then went on to win the Ontario, uh, championships in my age group. And then I was hooked. That was 1991. And I've never seriously considered quitting running ever since then. And, and if you look at Canadian top Canadian runners from Ontario, where I'm from, which is the biggest province, you will find a shocking proportion of them, at least from my generation, who were born between September 1st and December 31st. That's some Malcolm Gladwell stuff right there. <laughs> and Malcolm Gladwell won that same race that I did. <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. It made me think of, um, of his book. I believe it was, it was Tipping Point where he talked about the Canadian hockey players, actually. Ironically. Yeah. Uh, and and how a lot of them were born in between a certain a certain date range. Yeah, the relative age effect, and it's actually been discovered in pretty much every sport. So when I read that section in his work, I was like, "Oh yeah, that's why I'm running." You mentioned identity a little while ago, and how from very early on, from that race across the gymnasium, how you identified yourself as a top runner, and you went on to compete at a very high level. Olympic trials for Canada. You're still racing a little bit today, obviously not chasing the same goals, but do you still tie yourself to that identity on some level? Yeah. Yeah. For better or worse, I, you know, I'm not sure it's, <laughs> uh, you know, you never want to become too, um, uniquely tied to one identity. I think a lot of us have gone through this. I'm a runner. I'm a runner. I'm a runner. Oh, I'm injured. I'm nothing. Uh, it's not a good feeling. I, I do remember my first like serious injury where I couldn't run for quite a while. And it's like, well, what, you know, what am I, if I'm not a fast runner? Um, so for sure I do. I mean, I consciously try not to tie my self-worth to how fast I run, but I would, if I'm being honest with myself, I would say that there's a reason I've selected the races that I have chosen to compete in over the last five or 10 years. I tend to go to road races with hilly courses and funny distances. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying not to necessarily always, always have to measure myself. I, I have a pretty good sense of, because I do the same tempo run that I used to do 20 years ago, I, I know where my fitness is relative to where it was, but I, I'm also 
a little bit protective of that identity too. I can, I can maintain a little bit of the illusion that I'm still faster than I was by, by not say getting on the track and racing a 1500 or something like that. Even though I have lots of, I have some friends who race master's track and they have a lot of fun and they're always trying to encourage me to come out and I get tempted and I'm like, ah, I think I'm busy that day. <laughs> and I, I don't know if deep down I'm also like, you know what? My last 1500 that I raced 15 plus years ago was pretty good. Why, why, why replace that memory with a different one? Well, it's like the line from John L. Parker's Once a Runner, you have to be satisfied with the shadows. I, I saw that in your, in your newsletter, Annette, and that, that, that one speaks to me. And, and you had a great photo to go along with it, too. But yeah, you, you, you know, you, it's not that you want to repudiate that part of your life or forget it or put, cast it in amber. You want to actually still taste parts of that, too. You don't, exactly. want, it, you don't want it to be just memories, but you kind of want it to be through a, a sort of blurry frame so you're not strictly rigorously comparing yourself to who you were 10, 15 years ago. I think that's very well put. I'm also curious, and this has nothing to do with running, but have you always been a bit of a science nerd? Yes, and yeah. So look, I, I, if you'd asked me what my best courses were in grade 10, grade 11, I don't think I would have listed math or science. I would have thought, you know, history and, and English. And when I applied to university, I actually applied to, so I went to McGill for university. I applied there in history initially. Um, and it's funny, you know, I, I do have a mind that, um, a logical mind, like I was saying with, with about my mom's influence. And so that lends itself well to solving physics problems. And so in the last couple of years of high school, I had some teachers in physics and math whose teaching style really accorded well with my learning style. And it, the irony is that these teachers were actually, in some cases, a lot of people had trouble with them. They're, they're very, they were very old school, like 1950s style teachers. But their way of explaining things just sort of worked with my mind. So I got really high marks in physics and math. And I thought, oh, maybe I am a physics and math guy. Um, so, so that sort of identity shifted a little bit, maybe just because of the, the marks I was getting. Whereas if you look at, like I took the SAT, I did significantly better in the verbal than the math. And then the GRE, the grad student thing, four years later, same thing. I did better in the verbal than the math. So uh, for me, I think I, I wasn't so much a science geek as I was a very logically minded person, which is, I think, something a lot of runners have in common. Earlier in this conversation, you mentioned how you've always had a bit of an obsessive personality. How did that first begin to manifest itself for you? Yeah, I, I think it's actually something that, again... I only became a little more aware of, uh, you know, as I became an adult. And I, I went to a high school that was very academically selective. So everyone was a little bit, <laughs> um, there were a lot of people like me. And uh, let me put it this way. I was explaining to my wife once why I had stopped eating spoon-sized shredded wheat for for breakfast, which was because I don't know if you guys have spoon sized shredded wheat. They look like shreddies. Um, they're little squares. And I would eat it with cut up banana. But every morning I would get into the about I'd be trying to read while I eat my breakfast, eating my breakfast, and about two thirds of the way through, I would be like, Okay, how many shredded wheats do I have have left and how many bananas? Do I need to start going two shredded wheats with one banana or cutting a banana the bananas in half or like 
trying to just casually at the, with, with one tenth of my mind, make sure that my last five bites that I didn't run out of bananas before shredded wheats. And I, I, I told this to my wife and she's like, what the hell is wrong with you? Um, well, I actually, no, I should revise that history. I, I suspect, I don't remember the exact, her reaction was probably more along the lines of, yeah, that's, that's so typically you. Um, that's how I am. I, I like things, uh, ordered. I like things logically. I think th- I, I, I have, I have some friends who are actually very like me. And one of the discussions we have all the time is about loading the dishwasher because we all have like <laughs> algorithms for how the dishwasher should be loaded. And if you Google loading the dishwasher, marital dispute, you'll get like a billion hits because it's a common thing, but it's like, well, of course you load it this way because think about the angle of the water and, you know, like where this is going to go. And if you've got these size plates, you can't put that there because then you're not going to have room for the bowls. And I know I'm making myself sound like a nightmare here, but I, I would no, say... No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, of course. I love it because I'm, I'm, I'm very similar in, in a lot of ways. And this is this is kind of a, a common exchange between my wife and I. That's why I'm laughing so much yeah, right it's now. It's funny how many... The, 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 the dishwasher thing, it rings bells. It mm-hmm. rings a lot of bells for people. But it's it's like... Yeah. So it's those kinds of things where it's like, I don't think when I was 16, I was like, I'm super, I didn't think of myself as super obsessive or anything like that. And I don't, I don't think I'm like, it's not out of control for me, but it's just like, I now, the more people I meet from a broader spectrum of the world, the more I realize, well, that's, that's kind of on one side of the the range of where, where people are. And, you know, like, honestly, probably if your actual question was, when did I first start to realize it? It's like, probably my running log was the first real expression where I was aware that's like, yeah, there's a lot of people on this team. Nobody else is graphing all this stuff on Lotus One, Two, Three, and keeping track of exact number of miles per shoe and stuff like that. I think there are a lot of folks listening to this because I'm listening to you talk right now, and I'm just nodding my head. I'm like, yeah. When I go to put gas in my car, I've always got to make sure that the total ends on a zero or a five. It can't be some odd number. And my wife thinks I'm crazy for doing that or the meticulousness with which I put my own running long together is is certainly not normal, apparently, um, according to folks. I've, according I've to other around. people, yeah. yeah. According to other people. <laughs> and I think as endurance athletes, we all have our weird little obsessions or quirks or whatever you want to call it that is... I mean, is is definitely like personal to us, but I think is characteristics of endurance athletes worldwide. Yeah, and you know, it's it's a very interesting segue into topics like wearables and data and things like that. Because it's like I I I I run with a Timex Ironman, basically. Although right mm-hmm. now I've been I've just over the last couple of months I've been trialing out a an a, 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 an Apple Watch for a review, but. It's not because I don't love data. It's because I've recognized that I love it too much, um, and that if I if I let myself drink directly from the fire hose of of self monitoring data, it's I'll just spiral into that world. And so, yeah, I think that's a, a difficult thing to navigate for a lot of people. Um, and I think it, it doesn't mean that what's right for me is right for everybody. It just means that. I, in terms of not just in terms of finding getting the right data for my own training, but in terms of balancing pleasure and spontaneity with planning and and uh, you know analysis and stuff, I need to recognize where my tendencies lie and maybe not give full full rein to them. Well, I'm glad you brought this up because you recently wrote about the future of connected fitness and virtual workouts and classes and all of that. And I and I do want to dive into that a little bit with you. So my first question along those lines is, do you think a lot of this 
newer technology where we can quantify everything, get real-time updates about our progress or maybe lack thereof is turning us into robots? <laughs> so, yeah, let me, let me, so I actually just wrote a review of, of, uh, Apple fitness and the Apple watch that I think it was, as we're speaking, it was posted like yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, it was posted, let's put it this way. It was posted in, in mid December and, uh, one of I had a line. I, I know this is really bad form to say. I had a line that I really liked, but it was it was something along the lines of you know what I've noticed is so one of the rings you have to close with the Apple Watch is you have to be up and moving at least for one minute out of every hour, which sounds really minimal, but it actually turns out to be challenging if you sit at your desk all day long. And but I I do believe that it's actually a good thing to be up and moving once every hour for a minute. And so I've been responding to these these uh, you know nudges. And, and my wife laughs at me and, and I, I wrote something along the lines of like, uh, you know, I responded to these things, but each time I did, I felt like I was kind of sliding down Maslow's pyramid, trading self-actualization for, you know, little pellets of robot prescribed fitness. And, and that's, I kind of, and, and, and then I was trying to expand on that and trying to figure out like, so how do I explain what's wrong with that? And I don't know how to explain what's wrong with that. And maybe nothing's wrong with that. But something feels lost if I'm doing what I'm doing because my watch buzzed uh, and, and not just because I want to. So I, I don't know if that's a rational thing or just a, a sort of curmudgeonly, uh, back in my day, we didn't have buzzing watches. But, uh, but something about it to me doesn't feel as organic or as, as meaningful. That's how I feel as well. And it's mostly from a coaching standpoint because a lot of the athletes I work with, we can quantify everything now. I mean, most everyone runs with some kind of GPS watch. They've moved on from just the basic like Timex chrono that that I wore until like four years ago, basically. Um, and that's great. It gives me a lot of useful data. I can see where people have run. I can look at elevation profiles of their courses. I mean, now there's wrist-based heart rate in a lot of these watches. It's like I can look at that and there's like some utility to it. And there are more sensors that people can put on themselves now, track everything from like vertical oscillation to ground contact time, power now. And I think there are a lot of endurance athletes who are pretty type A. They do love the data, as, as you mentioned you did as well. Like you realize you loved it too much and that's why you kind of have to pull back from it. Um, and from what I see from a coaching standpoint is it, it almost becomes paralyzing um, and you lose that sense of connectedness funny that i'm using that word with yourself uh and you can't actually ask yourself like am i am i tired do i feel recovered from that workout two days ago or do i need my watch to tell me like yep you're ready to you're ready to go again so i think it's this it's this tricky balance and a fine line to walk between the two where you can rely on some of this data to actually help guide your training and give you some useful information versus allowing it to paralyze you or almost like program you into what you're going to do every day. Yeah. And I mean, one of the, one of the key questions to ask is like, does all this information allow us to make better decisions, not better decisions than just sort of stumbling along blindly, but better decisions than, than a smart coach and a smart athlete who have good communication can make with some honest, like, how did you feel today? How did, how did it compare to yesterday? I feel I I think that's I feel like that's sort of a Turing test. You know, the Turing test is can a computer convince you that it's human? It's like can 
all this data actually make like stuff like heart rate variability, which has real physiology behind it. It's not just voodoo or anything like that. I think it's, it's, it's real. But at the end of the day, does all the monitoring allow us to make better decisions than like an honest decision between two trusting and smart people? Now, I would, I would hypothesize, and I'm not saying this on the basis of science, I would hypothesize that we're in the valley right now where if you outsource all your decisions to technology and you lose touch with the ability to, to sort of feel what's right, you're going to end up worse off than if you just kind of focused on listening to yourself. But that doesn't mean it's always going to be the case. And it may be that in six months or six years or whatever the case may be, the technology is going to be so good that actually the people who just say, I'm going to turn my brain off and I'm basically going to outsource that part of my cognition to this device on my wrist, that that, that device is going to be so good that it's actually going to be better. Um, which again, it, you know, makes me a little bit sad for, for, for reasons that maybe aren't, are, well, that are difficult to articulate. But right now I would say, I don't think we're at that point yet where the, the, the data and the tech can give us better answers than the, uh, you know, the people. But so, so, uh, you know, that doesn't mean that it's not possible to use, use the data intelligently. And so for stuff like heart rate variability, what I might sort of take is it's not good enough to tell you whether you're recovered and ready, whether you should train hard today, but it's one more signal among the five that you might look at, including like, how do I feel today? How much have I been running in the last five days? Maybe I have been training extra, extra hard and you know, I'm not feeling great. I've been doing, oh, and my heart rate variability is way off. It's just one more thing that tips you towards, yeah, maybe today should be a, a day off. But I think it's hard to, it's hard to use it in that sort of halfway. We, we, we wish it would just, the technology, whether it's HRV or, or other things, would just tell us what, we, what to do because that's so much easier cognitively. Well, I appreciate that perspective and I agree with a lot of it. I think my biggest fear, and again, this is mostly from a coaching perspective because personally I feel like I've got a good handle on it, is that a lot of athletes, especially newer ones, aren't going to discover that real love for the pursuit itself or if they've been involved with it for a while but they've gone down this road of like over-datification of things that they'll lose it. Yeah, I, I, I feel the same way. And I, the, the other thing that maybe, I don't know if it applies to you, but I think it probably applies to me, is it's easy for me to be a little bit more, and well, you're, you're, and you're, you're, because of your coaching, I think you're, you're a little more in touch with what really is needed and what you can get from it. But I worry that I, I maybe, I can be a little too dismissive of the tech because I'm not trying to, I'm not worried about the milliseconds anymore. And so I, I'm pretty sure that if I was 24, I would be a lot more like, give me the power meter, give me the, the heart rate variability monitor, give me this, give me that. Don't worry, I know how to use them, I'll be, I'll be careful. Whereas now, I, I sort of feel like I'm seeing the bigger picture, but the bigger picture maybe, you know, when you're 24, you're not like, I want to find, you know, satisfaction and balance in my life. It's like, no, I want to kill, 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 kill. So, you know, I, I think I have to also be, I, I throw that caveat in there, that, that uh, um, there is... Um, there, there are different, there, there, people are in different places in their lives and people have different personalities. It's just like in this, you know, you think about heart rate for heart rate for easy runs. Some people need the heart rate to tell them to sl slow the heck down. Some people need the heart rate to tell them to speed the heck up. And I think most people don't need the heart rate at all, but there are people at both ends of the spectrum. And I think probably for a lot of tech, it's like, and so I, again, I'm, I'm so type A that I think I, 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 you know, I have enough analysis just based on my, you know, in my head. 
I don't need more more tech telling me stuff, but there's a, a lot of people who, who might be able to benefit from it in different ways. In the remaining time that we have here, I want to talk specifically about endurance and how you wrote about it in your book, Endure. And my first question is in terms of running and performance-minded pursuits. When a lot of people think of this idea of endurance, they think of the physical training necessary to persist or maintain a level of effort for longer periods of time. But in your book, you write a lot about the role of the brain. And I know this could be a a six-hour conversation on its own, and you wrote an entire book about it. But talk to me a little bit more about the role of the brain in endurance. Yeah, let's see how to how to kind of get at the heart of it. I guess during my sort of serious competitive running career, if you'd asked me this question, I would have given you or if you'd asked me about sort of what is it that limits your performance, I would have thought about it in a very specifically um physical model. Like is how much blood can my heart pump and how much lactate can my system buffer and how much force can my muscles generate uh, and in the same way that you know if 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 you ask me how far how fast a car can go i'm not going to you know i'm not going to worry about you know how cool the leather seats look or anything i'm just going to say well let's look at the engine let's see what the capacity of the engine is and understand the weight of the car and yada yada and you can there's there's formulas and it can tell you how fast a car can go and how far a car can go before running out of gas and I remember there was this amazing profile of Ian Dobson. Uh, I'm, oh God, I'm forgetting the name of the guy who wrote the the profile, but I apologize. Maybe I'll put it in the show notes, but um, this is from like 10 years ago. And Ian Dobson had made the Olympics in 2008 and then was struggling and it didn't look like he was going to make it in 2012. And so it, it was this sort of angsty existential profile and interview. And at one point he says, I did, you know, he's trying to explain why he didn't run well. It's like, you know, it should be mathematical, like, but it isn't. And, and that's, that's the sort of fundamental question that I think a lot of people, especially people with logical uh, ways of thinking, they, they end up with that question after years of running or competing in other sports like this, because it's like, hang on, I, I did the training. I did the training better than last time. I'm feeling fine. I got enough sleep. And yet I had a worse performance. Or, you know, and especially if you're doing short events like 1500s or 5Ks where you can race repeatedly. So it's not like you're a different person than you were seven days ago. You're the same person. It's like, well, how did I run 30 seconds faster? What is going on? It just doesn't make sense. That And, and you know, last week when I ran slower, it felt worse. I, you know, I, I, and so there, there's this totally missing part that you can't explain with the physical side. And so... In a sense, what what endure was was me spending a, a long time trying to convince myself that psychology is real. That that uh, <laughs> you know that 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 the thoughts you have uh, and the way you approach uh, you know a task like a, a race, it's not just like you can have a bad race because you get too nervous. It's like no, the very essence of in the middle of a race, you're asking yourself, can I maintain this pace? Can I speed up? Can I slow down? And that decision, which you're asking yourself with every stride, essentially, is not answered by, I can't speed up because some physical parameter is maxed out, because it's not. You, it's clearly not. You can keep going. Instead, it's maxed out by your brain's assessment of how hard you're going and whether that is something that is sustainable and will get you to the finish line. And so fundamentally, 
all you make that switch that oh no, at every point, unless I collapse on the ground, at every point through a race, it's been my mind that's deciding whether I can keep going or whether I can speed up or not. In your opinion, based on the research that you've done, what percentage, if you can quantify it, of endurance is mind versus body? Yeah, well, you know, if you read my book, you'll be like, wow, it's 95% mental. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 no. That's not what I intended to, to convey. I mean, there, there's a, a, I mean, part, part of it is uh, a man bites dog is more interesting than dog bites man. So we, we, we all know that you need to train to, to be a good, a good athlete, right? We all know that you need to, uh, you know, do, uh, have a strong heart and everything. So th- I kind of take that for granted and I'm writing about the stuff that's, that's maybe less, uh, important. So what are the proportions? I, it depends on who you're comparing with whom. So if you, if you take like a hundred random people off the street and ask them to run a marathon and you want to know how to, pr- to predict who's going to do best, man, send them to an exercise physiology lab, measure their VO2 max and running economy and maybe their lactate threshold, you're going to get an, a, a very, very good estimate of, of who's going to win, who's going to come, you know, what, what order people are going to finish in. The mind is, is going to be pretty minor when you're comparing a wide range of people. Do that same test on the start line of the Olympics and the lab test is going to be meaningless. It's going to tell you nothing. And that doesn't mean the physiology doesn't matter. It's just that the differences are very, very subtle. And at that point, I think the mental side really starts to play a bigger role. And I can't put a number on it, but, you know, and, and Elliot Kipchoge is a classic example. There was a recent paper that really revealed a bunch of data from the Breaking Two, uh, the, the runners who were considered for Nike's uh, Sub-2 Marathon project. And the, the key finding really was that the physiology of, of these guys, including Elliot Kipchoge, was not off the charts. You wouldn't necessarily say, oh, wow, Kipchoge's going to run 201 and everyone else is going to run 210. Now, does that mean Kipchoge is mentally stronger than everyone else? I, I don't know. These things, are, these things are beyond quantification. But if you, if you ask what's special about Elliot Kipchoge, um, you know, compared, compared to the average person on the street, what's special about him is, is that he has a massive heart and, and, you know, all these physiological things. But compared to other runners, I think what's special about him is, is the mind. So it really depends on, the, on the, the basis of comparison. Let's continue down that line. You were one of the two journalists who were granted access to Nike's Breaking 2 project. That was the first sub-two-hour marathon attempt. In what ways did that experience shift your perspective about performance and what was possible? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that breaking two experience was very interesting in a lot of ways. I mean, the the bottom line is if you ask what the key takeaway from that experience was, it was like, oh, shoes matter after all, (laughs) you know, like that was the introduction of the vapor flies and, and, and really that has dominant, well, I mean, it has dominated you know, the experience of being a, a spectator or journalist in running for the last uh, four years now. Well, it's dominated everything. It's dominated the experience of being an athlete in <laughs> yeah. running. Um, oh, it's yeah. dominated the, the experience of, of yes, being a, a journalist and an observer of the sport and, and even as a fan. I mean, just this morning in my newsletter, I was writing about 
the stack heights allow that are allowable on the track right now because World Athletics says it's got to be 25 millimeters, but USA Track and Field says, oh, the super shoes and 40 millimeter stack heights, they're okay to qualify for the Olympic trials and, and for better or worse. Like it's it's been in the headlines now for the past few years and I don't see it going away anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. So it's, I mean, so one question is like, is does that very, very bright star obscure other interesting takeaways from that experience? I think the answer is yes, to some extent. There, there, are, there were other things that were interesting. In a sense, it was a big test of the idea of like, if you really, really have, you know, unlimited resources and the, the time and attention and willingness to, to sweat o- over all the details, you know, the drafting and the course and the hydration and everything, does that actually matter? And my initial takeaway was that, wow, it proves that it does matter because Kipchoge ran two flat 25 in 2017, and that was two and a half minutes faster than the world record. In hindsight, I look back on that and I'm like, oh, no, maybe I was tricked. Maybe it was all the shoes or, you know, some drafting and mostly the shoes and all the nutrition and hydration and all those details. Maybe that stuff, it, you know, like, because it, it, one of the great mysteries over the last, let's say, 20 years has been we've got all this sports science and we've got stuff like the Nike Oregon Project where we're, we're, we're all bent out of shape over all the 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 tiny little things they're trying to do. And meanwhile, if you look at the top 1,000 marathon times in any given year, 950 of them or something like that are from Kenya and Ethiopia. And yeah, a few of those guys are sponsored, of those men and women are sponsored and, and maybe have access to, to, you know, shoes and things like that. But most of them, the guys who are running, you know, 208 or, uh, you know, 226 or, so, or things like that, Man, they barely have enough food, They're, and so this idea that, that the technology is it makes the difference, I think, is a really interesting. Um, it's kind of a a worthwhile question to ask as as we sort of sweat over you know which sports drink to use and and yada yada. It's like I don't know, I don't know. That's it's not that those things don't matter, but there's something there's something else that that uh, or there are there are other things where the big uh, progress seems to be made. And so anyway, back to the breaking two thing. It's like. In a sense, it seemed like it was a triumph of science, but I'm not sure how much of that was really just triumph of the shoes. Well, and the the flip side of that, and certainly applies to the shoes, but a lot of the other things that you talked about too, especially this day and age, these things are commercialized. Um, companies are trying to sell shoes and nutritional products, and you know every little alteration that that you can make or or add to your kit or whatever it may be that may give you a few seconds here or there, and they can't you can't quantify like what's making the biggest difference, but on some level we know that the, the totality of, of these things is, is making some difference or could make some difference. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's kind of like, here's an example from the breaking two project. They, they're, they're uniforms. So it's like, they're going to have skin tight uniforms and they're going to have little dimples or little adhesives stuck to their legs to make their legs more aerodynamic as they whip back and forth. I mean, that's not wrong. It's real. And like aerodynamics is real. Um, but does it really matter if you're wearing a loose singlet in a marathon? Like how, how much does it matter? And it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's kind of an impossible question to answer. You can't have people run like five marathons with it, with varying tightness of clothes and have everything be the same and, and say, oh, well, it does make 0.2 seconds or 0.5 seconds or five seconds or whatever. So it's like, even like 
not even talking about the stuff that's bogus, because there's lots of stuff that's bogus, um, it's impossible to know. There's a sort of, it's just impossible to, to be sure about these small things. And if you're competitive, you want, if something has the potential to give you five seconds over the course of a marathon, you want it. But it's hard to, it's very hard to know for sure. And then, as you said, there's the, there's the, the commercial influence. I mean, recovery is the classic example of this, where mm-hmm. it's like, it's a multi-billion dollar industry now. It's like, this is going to help you recover faster. And it's like, okay, some of it is bogus. Some of it is real, but it's hard to know whether it's real and significant or it's just real. And it happens to be that pro athletes use it because they're paid to use it. And there's a market for it. A lot of people want the silver bullet and they're willing to pay almost any dollar amount if they can afford it to get that. Yeah. And I I don't see a I don't see a solution. I don't see any like way that 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 situation ends because again, if if there was a way of like saying, "Look, I did an experiment and it proves that this thing doesn't matter," then that's one thing. Even then, that wouldn't kill the market, uh, as, as we you know people still buy power balance bracelets. But but in the absence of since those experiments are kind of impossible, you can't prove that something isn't giving a small edge. Then yeah, there's people want it. I mean, heck, I, I I'm 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 human. I, I love the idea of of uh, you know something that'll help me recover a little faster or, or 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 go a little faster as long as it's within the rules. A few months ago, in the morning shakeout newsletter, I closed with a line from Endura, and the line said, "Just like a smile or a frown, the words in your head have the power to influence the very feelings they're supposed to reflect." Let's dig into that. A little bit more. What did you mean exactly by those words? Yeah, so I think that's really at the core of of if there's anything practical that comes out of Endure, that's that's it. And and it relates to something called motivational self talk, which is a sports psychology technique that's been around for a long time. Um, that I certainly dismissed for a long time, but there's been a couple of studies in recent years that have really tried to be a little bit more rigorous about testing. Does this work? Does it work? Is there a difference between, you know, going through a race thinking, oh, this is so hard. I can't do this. Oh, I I think I'm behind pace. Or going, or having a more, which I think, you know, certainly I know that that's my, my internal monologue, if I've tuned into it, often tends to be kind of pessimistic and defeatist. And, does that make a difference or can you learn to be more positive and does it matter? And there's, there's some pretty good research that, yeah, it does matter. And you can kind of intuit it that again, like I was saying before, at any point in a race, you're making decisions, right? Can, can, can you speed up? Can you maintain this pace or do you need to slow down? And if the, the constant background in your mind is this is too hard, my, you know, I screwed up my training again. I can't believe I, you know, had missed that week three weeks ago because or four weeks ago, cause I was injured and, uh, or, you know, and I had so much work this week and, oh, that guy's always, he always pulls away from me at this point. You're just much more likely to answer that question on a subconscious level as, no, I can't maintain this. I'm going to slow down. Then if you're telling yourself, yeah, this is what I, this is where I want to be. I trained for this. I'm ready for this. It's supposed to hurt. This is what it's supposed to feel like. And it sounds so cliched, but, uh, by, by learning to tell yourself those things, it's, it's, it's again, like in that, in the line you quoted, it's like, if you smile, there's some studies, you know, they're a little bit controversial, but there's studies showing that you're more likely to, you know, to find things amusing or to be in a good mood by, you know, the, the, the mood follows the action as, as Rich Roll and a few other people have said, but that's the, the kind of general gist that you can, you can change how you're perceiving an effort 
by telling yourself that it's not as bad, you know, that it's actually, it's okay. Talk to me a bit about suffering. Can one's willingness to suffer actually be trained? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm sure there's some, I'm, you know, I'm sure we're born with some differences too. And, and, and certainly like experience as a kid probably affected too, but there, there's plenty of data showing that it's not that you learn, it's not that you don't feel pain anymore. If you're, if you're a trained athlete, you feel pain at the same point as everyone else does. It's just that you're willing to tolerate it for longer. So if you, if you think of some sort of pain technique that gives you escalating pain, whether it's with pressure, like poking you or electrocuting you or with heat or whatever, there's a point at which everyone says, you know, roughly everyone says, Hey, that's starting to hurt. Uh, but then the point you can, but you can keep tolerating it. And then after a while you get to the point where you're like, okay, that's enough. I, that's, I can't take it anymore. And athletes have higher levels and after training athletes levels increase. And the key point is if you look at athletes at different points in the season, it fluctuates too. So you're most, you have your highest levels of pain tolerance, you know, during your hardest training and your lowest levels during the off season. So the, the thing is here is not that you grow some calluses on your pain nerves and then you don't feel pain anymore. It's no, you, you, you're still feeling pain and it's a question of, of, of having strategies to, to deal with it, to, to say, you know, to distract yourself or to convince yourself that it's just, it's just information. It's just telling me how long I can, I've got left. It's not, I don't need to panic. I'm not dying. And so, so, but, but it's a lesson you have to relearn every year or every season, not completely. You don't start back at zero, but it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a psychological learning process that's as true for elite athletes as it is for people getting off the couch for the first time to run a 5k and learning that just because they're out of breath, you know, the first, the first week they may slow to a walk as soon as they get out of breath because it feels like they're about to die. But after a while they learn, no, 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 this is just a, you know, it's just a signal that I'm, that I, that I'm working hard and, and I can, I can tolerate that pain or that discomfort for a little bit longer. Does that willingness to suffer and training yourself to tolerate it for longer and longer in something specific like running translate into other areas of your life or can it translate into other areas of your life? It, it definitely translates. And we know this because when people do studies of, of athletes, they're often using tests of pain tolerance that have nothing to do with the, the sport in particular. So it might be um, cutting off circulation to your arm with a blood pressure cuff or poking, like as I was saying, poking you or electric shocks or heat or whatever. That has not, you know, if you train as a runner, that doesn't inherently make you better at, at dealing with being poked with a stick. Um, so we know it transfers. So then the, the question is like, the question, or at least for me, one of the interesting questions is, okay, so how widely does it transfer? Does it transfer into being able to deal with, you know, a plane delay when you're stuck in the airport for 12 hours, which is a different kind of pain. Um, you know, maybe pain isn't the right word, but are you able to translate that, that sort of ability to handle discomfort, uh, into more abstract ways beyond just physical pain? I think the answer is yes, but I, you know, I'm, I'm not, uh, I don't, I don't think no one has run that experiment yet. Going back to breaking two and then the follow-up event to that, which happened in Vienna where Kipchoge did break two hours. It was like the launch of the No Human is Limited campaign. And I'd love to get your thoughts on potential. Is it limitless or do we have limits? How should we be thinking about our limits? All that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I was really taken with Elliot Kipchoge. I, you know, I guess I met him for the first time in 2016 and 
he's just such a an interesting guy, like super nice guy, but extremely thoughtful. Um, anyone who's extremely thoughtful and, and interesting and introspective, once they get turned into a hashtag, it, it becomes a little bit of a caricature. Um, so, you know, the, the Elliot Kipchoge of Instagram now, you know, there's only so much nuance you can convey in, in that medium. I do think he's a, he's a very interesting guy and a very thoughtful guy. And I don't think it's a coincidence that a guy who's thought so carefully about limits and about how to push to convince himself that he's not limited, that he has been someone to break records. Now, I mean, look, we can say some obvious things like, of course we all have limits, right? I, I mean, there is nothing, there is no force in the universe that could make me run a sub two hour marathon now or, or ever. Uh, well, okay. You know, barring, you know, let, we'll leave the shoe stuff aside, you know, barring rocket, rocket propelled shoes. So we all have different limits and that's super important. I think that this is one of those things where you, you, you have to sort of try and understand what he's saying as opposed to worrying about the literal words. He's not saying that we can all run a one second marathon because otherwise we'd be limited if we couldn't. But the truth is, I mean, when I look at my own PBs or PRs, uh, as, as, as you may prefer to call them, in no way do I think they represent the limits of what my body was capable of. And I suspect 99.9999999999999% of other runners feel the same way, right? Like it, we, that you're never really bumping up against your absolute limits. There's always something that could have been done different. And I think Elliot Kipchoge is making a slightly stronger version of that argument, saying that even when we think we're, even the limits we think we're coming close to, actually there is more in the tank if, if, you, if you know about it or if you're able to find your way to, to access it. I don't think it means that, oh, if you just sort of slap the hashtag on your Instagram, you're going to discover that you can go a minute faster over 10K. But I think it's a useful message to keep in mind. Because, to, to, again, if you go back to what we were saying earlier, you know, the way I thought about limits when I was 20 or whatever, that it's, it's, you know, it's a matter of VO2 max and lactate threshold. It, be, it feels then when you have a hard race that you think went pretty well, then, you, then your feeling is, well, that's as fast as I can go right now. And yeah, you, you figure, okay, well, I'm going to train harder for next season or I'm going to put in some good workouts or I'm going to do something and hopefully I'll get a little bit faster. But you, you, you have, I guess, what tends to be called a, a, you know, a fixed growth mindset or a fixed mindset rather as a, instead of a growth mindset. You think, this is what I am. Whereas if you take the Kipchoge approach, I think it encourages you to think, this is what I did today, but it doesn't necessarily put any hard boundaries on what I can do tomorrow even though we, we know that a guy who runs a 2.30 marathon all out is not going to, as unlikely to run a 2.05 tomorrow. But he, you know, with, within certain reasonable parameters, he shouldn't be thinking, I'm a 2.30 guy and next time I want to run 2.30. I love that and appreciate that perspective. Last question, you're a lifelong runner. You are still involved in the sport. You're still doing your workout and tempo run every week. What is exciting you about the sport right now? Hmm, well, I don't want to jinx anything, but the potential return of, well, first of all, of elite track and road races to watch, to see, I mean, the Olympics would be a great capstone, capstone but even just to be able to see 
uh, you know, and we, I mean, I, yes, we saw a few diamond league races last summer, but to, to a proper season with people duking it out, not just as, as great as it has been to see people set world records in, in some ways this, this, this summer and fall to see competition, to watch, to debate who's going to win the next race. Uh, if that, if it transpires that we can have that this summer, that would be awesome. And then on the sort of trickle down level, the participation level, some big mass participation races, it would be nice to get back in that, in that mode. And I'm not, you know, I, I, I tend to run 5Ks, not, you know, so I'm not talking about a 50,000 person marathon. I'm talking about a 5K or an 8K or a 10K with a thousand people. That energy, that, that sort of, that focus that it adds to my training. I, I, I don't know exactly when it will happen. I hope it will happen sometime in 2021. And I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Amen to that. I have the same hope. I've really enjoyed this last hour and a half talking to you. Alex Hutchinson, thank you so much for coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thanks, Mario. It's, it was a lot of fun to chat. All right. Thank you so much for listening in to the Morning Shakeout podcast. A big thank you to Tracksmith for sponsoring this week's episode. Tracksmith is an independent running brand built on a deep love for the sport. They craft products, tell stories, and create experiences that aim to celebrate, support, and add to running's distinct culture. And this holiday season, Tracksmith is acknowledging that running is a gift and that this year, the miles meant more. If you're looking for the perfect gift for yourself or someone else this holiday season, Tracksmith is offering new customers $15 off your first purchase of $75 or more through the end of the month. To learn more, check out tracksmith.com and use the code MARIO15, that's MARIO15, when you check out. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your friends and followers to listen and subscribe. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. If you want to support my work directly, you can become a member on Patreon at themorningshakeout.com slash support. I put out a separate weekly podcast on there called The Weekly Rundown, which I co-host with my friend and colleague Billy Yang, and I offer other exclusive perks and sneak peeks from time to time. Last two things before we wrap up. I'd like to give a shout-out, as always, to my man John Summerford. He's my audio ninja for this show and makes every episode sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for the social media assistance and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. Finally, if you're digging the podcast, I think you will love the Morning Shakeout email newsletter. Every Tuesday morning, I give my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a short collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to, and you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs>